Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Hebrews together. We come to chapter 11 this morning, and if you're with us and you don't have a Bible this morning, there are men coming up the aisles with lots of Bibles. And if you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And uh, great to follow along as well as to hear the Word of God. And, uh, and if you don't own a Bible, please make that a Bible, uh, that Bible a gift to you from the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not yet seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, He being dead still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah. By verse, in verse 17, by faith, Abraham, once again. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac. Verse 21, by faith Jacob, 22, by faith Joseph, 23, by faith Moses, speaking of his parents there. Verse 24, by faith Moses. Verse 30, by faith, speaking of Joshua and the children of Israel, 31, by faith the harlot Rahab. And what more, verse 32, shall we say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They also, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Now tell, let me tell you about my great trial. <laughs> and then I love this in verse 38. Of whom the world was not worthy. And they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word, every bit of it. And then, Lord, we thank you for the mountain 
top passage that Hebrews chapter 11 is because of the great things that it's intended to do in each one of our lives and our walk with you in the very fallenness of this world that we live in. We surrender to you fresh right now and ask, Lord, that as we study your word that you would fashion our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength after your will. Give us your perspective, Lord. Use your word this morning to make us into the people that you want us to be and that you know we need to be, Lord, as we walk with you and talk with you along life's narrow way in this world. Bless us. Speak to us, Lord. Help us to hear your voice, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that these Christians that the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to, they were facing tremendous persecution and hardship for the simple reason that they had put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, and they were now living a life of simple obedience to his word. And the persecution and the hardship that they were facing became so great that they were actually contemplating abandoning their commitment to Jesus alone for salvation and returning to their former religious system that taught that salvation can be achieved through human effort or through good works. So they're about to exchange the truth for a lie. And the writer now tells them that the proper response to hardship and to persecution due to our faith is never apostasy, not even backsliding, not even compromise, but it is never apostasy. The response to that kind of circumstance in our life is always to be faith. Now, the context of Hebrews chapter 11 is actually found in the first uh, section, the first phrase, really, of chapter 12, verse 1, where we are told, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So the writer tells us that as Christians, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. You see a little bit later in that verse, what the writer is doing is he is likening the Christian life to a race, to a foot race. And there's a lot of uh, analogies and imagery used in the Bible uh, likening the Christian life uh, to athletic events. He likens it to a foot race. And we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Now, some people look at this opening phrase of chapter 12, verse 1, and they believe that this verse is telling us that this refers to a great group of Christians who have died, they've gone to heaven, And now they're watching everything that's going on on the earth, listening to everything that's going on on the earth. And that's a kind of a common view that a lot of people have of people that have gone to heaven, that now they're up there and, um, you know, aunt so-and-so and and uncle so-and-so and and all, they're watching us and they know and they understand and and, uh, they're with us even right now and... Uh, but I'm, I'm not inclined to believe any of that at all. 
Uh, to me, heaven wouldn't be heaven at all if that were the case. Can you imagine going into heaven, graduating into heaven, and then still having to watch this mess down here? I mean, I, you'll excuse me for having a little higher expectation of heaven than that. It would be like going into heaven, they take you into a room where there's this gigantic big screen television, they strap you into the chair, and you are forced to watch news 24 hours a day. I mean, that, that's, that's not a description of heaven. That's more a description of hell in my mind. The fact of the matter, the Bible teaches that the only thing that we really are sure of that Christians are aware of in terms of the happenings on planet earth when they are in heaven is when somebody gives their life to the Lord Jesus and becomes a Christian because Jesus told us that when that happens, all of the angels in heaven break out in celebration. So when all of that, when that occurs, they realize that at least that has occurred on the earth, and that's probably the only information they receive in terms of the goings-on here on the earth. Now, we need to ask ourselves, who are these witnesses that the writer is referring to? And these witnesses are the long list of Old Testament saints that are listed in in Hebrews chapter 11, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. And then he tells us in verse 32, time would fail to tell of all of the rest of the people that could enter his mind to make the same point. So we ask ourselves, what is that great fact that their lives are a witness to and intended to be a witness to each of us as Christians. And their lives are a witness to this great fact, that the life of faithfulness and obedience that God has called us to can be lived whatever the persecution and whatever the hardship. You say, how do they know? Because they did it. They've already lived it. And now they rise up from the pages of Scripture to encourage us in the race of faith that God has put us into as Christians, that this race can be run and that it can be finished. And the writer is telling us, that we need to come under the influence of these Old Testament saints when we hit hardship in our life. In this Christian life, in this Christian race that we're running, there's a lot of things in life that are discouraging. They discourage us in the race. Um, and, and so we need to have a place that we go to to keep us encouraged, that keeps our confidence up and, and keeps this kind of thing going on in our heart, and he tells us that coming to this chapter of the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, will always accomplish that. Now, the writer of the, uh, uh, the image that the writer is desiring to produce in our minds is kind of this great outdoor uh, athletic stadium, a big open-air athletic stadium. 
and where the seats are all filled with men and women of faith, and they're not merely spectators, but we're told that they're witnesses. They are testifiers from their own experience that the life of faith can be lived. And so they chant to us from the pages of Scripture, it can be done, it can be done, it can be done. The life of faith and holiness can be lived in this world even in the face of the most difficult circumstances of life. So you put, figure yourself and imagine yourself, you're running a marathon. Now that requires a little more imagination for some of us than it does for some of you. But we can all imagine it and then have a great meal after we're imagining that we ran it. So you're running a marathon, and oftentimes they end these marathons in some kind of a stadium, the, you know, like Olympics or something like that, or even uh, smaller marathons. They end in some place where a great crowd can gather and watch somebody finish the final section of their race and clap and be an encouragement to them. So imagine you've run now this, you're running this marathon, and as you come through the tunnel from the outside streets that leads you now into that uh, floor of the stadium to run one final lap that will constitute the end of your 26.2 miles of the marathon. And as you're running through that tunnel, suddenly you emerge from the end of the tunnel. The great crowd looks and they see that it's you. And then they rise to their feet and they begin to clap and shout as an encouragement to you. Well, instantly you would be energized by that kind of encouragement. I mean, you hit the wall back at mile 19, and from there it's been just putting one foot out in front of the other, not knowing whether you could do it even one more step. You don't know if you're dead. You don't know if you're alive. You don't know if you're going to finish for another 10 seconds, let alone finish the race, but you just keep on going. I mean, you're a running dead man. And you walk into that, and then you get hit with that great roar of encouragement, and suddenly when that kind of thing hits you, it causes you to find that hidden reservoir of strength that you don't even know is there, and it allows you to not only finish the race, but to finish it with a sprint. And that is the kind of encouragement that God wants Hebrews chapter 11 to be in each of our lives as Christians as we face persecution and trials and difficulties in our walk with the Lord, where we hear these witnesses rise up and shout to us, it can be done, it can be done, it can be done. This life of faith and holiness can be lived even in the most difficult circumstances that we will face in life. Now, what in the world is faith? And he, he tells us a little bit about faith in chapter 11, verse 1, tells us what faith is. And in chapter 1, uh, what we have there, I mean, verse 1 of chapter 11, he says, Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That is not so much a definition of faith as it is something maybe um, even superior to a definition of faith 
in terms of the need of these Hebrew believers and the need of any Christian in the time of great crisis. When we're in a time of great crisis and difficulty in our life, we don't need a definition of faith so much. What we need to do do is what the author does in verse 1, and that is to give us a practical description of how faith responds to the various obstacles and circumstances that confront us in life. And so faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. So I read it, and some of us listen to that uh, description, and we think to ourselves, I know that that it sounds good. It sounds very impressive, and I know it to be true. But I can't get my mind around it. I can't even get to square one in terms of understanding what that verse says. I don't have the foggiest idea what what it is that he's saying there. All right, I understand that. So how about a little bit of a translation of a translation? He's saying that faith is living in an absolute confidence in what God has said or promised, even when the fulfillment of his promise isn't seen yet. And I think the Living Bible is very, very helpful here. It translates it this way. What is faith? It is the confident assurance that something we want of God's promises is going to happen. It is the certainty that what we hope for is waiting for us, even though we cannot see it up ahead. That's very good. Faith is believing something to be true because God has said it. And you notice in verse 2 that the writer tells us that no serious Christian will ever escape the life of faith. We may try to, but we will not be able to escape, ending up to having to live a life of faith as a Christian, if for no other reason, he tells us, because that is where we obtain a good testimony. No one will ever hear from the lips of Jesus, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord without living a life of of faith. Now he tells us further in verse 3 that faith in God's Word doesn't result in some kind of blindness or impairment as it relates to our thinking or as it relates to our feeling or our knowing or our understanding or our experiencing of life. People portray Men and women of faith, they portray Christians as these people that operate on the basis of blind faith, and because of that, their minds atrophy, their life experiences dismal, and not what it would otherwise be, and, and, and they don't understand life as fully as they would 
understand life if they would just get out from under this superstition of believing in God and believing the Bible to be the Word of God and then obeying the Bible. And so they look at us as if we are to be pitied. But faith in God's Word, the writer tells us, provides us with a revelation and an understanding about everything that we would not otherwise uh, have apart from His revelation and apart from His Word. For example, if it were not for God's revelation through His Word in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we would not know the truth about the origin of the universe and the world and the origin of life. But because of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we know, number one, that God created the heavens and the earth, and number two, that He spoke it into existence. You take Genesis chapter 1 and 2 out of human history. You remove that from mankind as a base of knowledge, and man knows nothing about creation. He knows nothing about how we got here, why we're here, how all of this was created, the universe, the world, and how we were created. You remove those two chapters from God's Word, and we live in absolute darkness concerning that great and important thing concerning life and question in life. And the person who knows and believes these things about the origin of life and the earth and the universe and all of creation, not only is not blind and not naive and not mistaken, but believes and knows the truth about those things. No matter how simple that person is, no matter how naive that person is, No matter how uneducated that person is, what they know by virtue of God's Word is infinitely greater than what the most sophisticated and educated person in the whole wide world knows that rejects this revelation from God. And it is the contention of the Holy Spirit that the person who believes in the truth of what God says in His Word, having to do with anything, anything from creation to how to live a life, that that person knows the truth about those things because God has declared that truth. And I love it because I love apologetics to a point. But here the writer doesn't get into some big mind-numbing apologetic over all of this. He simply states that the person who accepts God's revelation concerning anything knows the truth about that anything. And the person who rejects God's revelation concerning anything knows nothing ultimately about that anything. Ultimate revelation concerning everything important, truly important in life comes by faith, by believing it because God has said it. And, and because 
again, because God, of what God has to say about it and because God has said it. A person says, well, how can I know that it's true? How can I know? Is there some, you know, kind of proof that what God has said about anything and everything is true? How can I discover whether it's true? Very easy. By believing His Word and then obeying it. And then watching the quality of life that unfolds emotionally, mentally, intellectually, in terms of mental health. Watch the quality of physical life, how we use our bodies and our health, how we spend our physical strength. Watch where all of that goes, not saying anything about what happens spiritually, and then look at the life that God's wisdom produces as opposed on all those levels as opposed to the kind of life that man's wisdom produces. To put our faith in God's Word is not blind faith at all, the writer declares. And so often the world cries out, seeing is believing, but God declares concerning most of life and certainly all that is important to him in life, believing is seeing. There are things we will never come to know until we believe his word. But the moment we do, then we will see the evidence for the fact that it is divinely inspired and that it is worthy of being called the very Word of God. Now he goes from that now in verse 4 to giving us examples of faith. And in this passage he calls 17 different witnesses from the Old Testament. He calls them uh, forth to the witness stand to establish the simple fact that the life God has called us to live can be lived even in the face of the hardest of times and the deepest of trials. And he begins with witness number one, a man by the name of Abel, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. Abel had a brother by the name of Cain. God came to Cain and Abel and he said, this is the sacrifice. This is how I want you to approach me. I want you to offer this sacrifice. And Abel, being a herdsman, he took one of the animals from his flock and he offered that animal to the Lord just as the Lord required. He operated with God on the basis of sacrifice and faith. Cain didn't want to do it, though he had the same revelation. Cain was a farmer, and he decided that he was going to have a relationship with God on his terms, not on God's terms. And so rather than offering an animal to God, he brought some of his crops and offered those things to the Lord. And in this, he's a picture of a man who's determined to have a relationship with God, one day go to heaven based upon his own terms, not based upon God's terms, based upon human effort and works, 
rather than acting upon faith in what God has said. And God rejected Cain's offer. And instead of repenting and doing the right thing, Cain rose up and he killed his brother Abel for simply obeying God. And this persecution of those who live faithful to God's word concerning salvation and a relationship with God by religions who believe that salvation and a relationship with God is based on religious works and human effort and it's self-defined and not God-defined, that persecution of the one against the other, of the Cain against the Abel, is as old as Genesis chapter 4. And it still goes on today all over the world. And without a doubt, these Hebrew Christians were facing not only persecution from the Roman Empire, but they were also receiving opposition from their Jewish brethren. And Abel rises up from the pages of Scripture to encourage them and us that God can be obeyed and He is to be obeyed whatever the religious persecution we might face. Very few of us in this room face religious persecution. Some do. But this illustration of, of, of Abel, of all 17 that are listed in this chapter, in vast parts of the kingdom of God all around the world, that Abel will be the single greatest encouragement to them because they are persecuted by the works-based and by man-made religion because of their simple belief that salvation is based, is a free gift from God received by, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the lesson for us and these readers of the letter is that we can obey God and should obey God, whatever the religious persecution might be that we would face. He then moves on to Enoch in verses 5 and 6, and we're told that Enoch pleased God. Well, anytime I read in the Bible that somebody pleased God, I want to ask myself, what about his life made it pleasing to God? And we're told concerning Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 that he lived 65 years and then he begot Methuselah, And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and begot sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not. He had a little private rapture, for God took him. And concerning Enoch, God says one thing twice in terms of the pleasure that Enoch brought to him, and that is that he walked with God. Say, so what's the big deal about that? He walked with God for over 300 years. You say, what's the big deal about that? These Jewish Christians have walked with the Lord for just a few years. Just a few years worth of difficulty. And they're being tempted to throw the whole thing off. And here is a man who is a part of our heritage as God's people who walked with God faithfully for 300 years. 
And we know from Jude, verses 14 and 15, that he walked with God not only for 300 years, but during that 300 years, it was a time in which the world was becoming progressively more and more evil. And so this is what, this is what Enoch did, and he teaches us that we can do the same thing. We can walk faithfully with God no matter how evil the world becomes all around us. And of course, the world that we live in currently is the very same world that Enoch was living in at that time and that it is becoming progressively more and more uh, evil. And so Enoch didn't abandon his relationship with God, but he stayed faithful to God until God took him home to heaven. And Enoch encourages us that we can do the same until God takes us home to heaven, either individually or by way of the rapture. And then he moves on to Noah in verse 7 from Genesis chapter 6. And we remember that God called Noah to prepare a great boat, a great ark, in preparation for the judgment that God was going to pour out on the entire world because of the wickedness of the world. And that that boat represented a way of salvation in the midst of the judgment that was to come. And God warned him that that judgment was going to come in a very unprecedented way in terms of human history, that the judgment would come in the form of a flood, and that the, and that the f- source of the flood, among other things, would be rain. And we remember that it was a time in human history where prior to the flood, the earth was watered not by rain, but by a mist that came upon the earth each day. And so nobody even knew what rain was. And God is speaking to Noah related to that. And so there's going to be flooding, there's going to be rain, and, and God warned Noah of this impending Uh, unprecedented judgment that was to come on the earth, even as God has warned us of an unprecedented judgment that is to come on the earth. We know it as the Great Tribulation. So what did Noah do? You know the story, most of us. He built that ark. You know how how long it took him to build that ark? Sixty days. He got a kit from Sears. No. (laughs) Took him a hundred years. A hundred years, and he built that ark. It was a good thing that he did that, because because only he and his family got on that ark. Only he and his family took advantage of God's plan of salvation and were saved. And the rest of the world, they responded for a hundred years to Noah's claims to have heard God and his faithfulness to obey God. They responded with either mocking or indifference. And concerning faith, Noah teaches us that we can obey God and live for God even if nobody else does in the whole wide world. That does something good in me every time I say it and every time I hear it. I can walk with God alone in this world even if nobody else and the whole wide world does it. He also teaches us that we're to be faithful to God. If he asks us to do something, he's never asked anybody to ever, else to do ever in human history. 
Again, it had never rained, it had never flooded, and he calls on Noah to do uh, this thing, and uh, again, unprecedented, and yet God had called him to do it, and he was to do it. And I think third, Noah teaches us that we can walk with God even if the whole world thinks me a fool for doing so. How many people think you're a fool for being a Christian? Say, I don't know. I know there's some. But they don't t- people don't say that to your face, do they? I don't know how many people think I'm a fool for being a Christian. I know there's a lot of people who think every Christian is a fool. And so since I'm a Christian, I'm in that category. When I first gave my life to the Lord, there were people who thought I was a fool doing what I was doing and doing what I was doing with my life. What they think now, I don't know after all these long years. And having seen the change that God has brought to my life. But that's something that we all deal with. People thinking that we're a fool for living the life that we're living. We're wasting our life. We're throwing it away. We're not experiencing all the things that could be experienced. And Noah teaches us that we can remain faithful to God when they... even in the face of people thinking that we're a fool, but also in the face of man's mocking, and then sometimes even more hurtful, man's indifference toward God and toward us. And then he speaks of Abraham in verses 8 through 10. We're told that Abraham was willing to go out not knowing where he was going in verse 8. We remember from Genesis chapter 12, God came to Abraham and said, I want you to leave your land. I want you to leave your hometown. I want you to leave your family. And I want you to go to a place that I will show you. He calls him and gives him very clear revelation of what he is to do, and that is you're to leave where you are now. But he doesn't tell Abraham where he's going. Abraham would not find out step two of the progression until he had obeyed step one. And sometimes God operates that way in our life. I'm such a great man of faith, but here's how I like it to work out. God, I'd like you to show me step one and step two, and then show me the whole thing all the way to its end until the day I get into heaven, and then... I will go around telling everyone that I'm a great man of faith when that doesn't require any faith at all. But it's good to know and it's important to know that sometimes God tells us to do one thing and we want the whole story or we're not going to do it. But He leads progressively very, very often. And it was only as Abraham left his nation and his land, his hometown, that God then revealed to him where he was taking him to, and that was the promised land. And so he obeyed God with only half the revelation, no guarantee for where he would end up, and, and, and was faithful to obey God and all of that. And, that, and faith is willing to obey God and, and not knowing where it's going to lead But you you say, well, what knowledge do you possess that makes that worthwhile? Knowing I'm in His will. 
You can be in the greatest place in the whole wide world, the most beautiful place in the whole wide world, and if you are out of the will of God, it won't compare to being in a desert in the will of God, not for a child of God. This whole progressive revelation, God working in that kind of a way in a person's life, there's a New Testament example of it with a gentleman by the name of Philip in Acts chapter 8, where Philip is in the middle of a great revival among the Samaritans in the land of Israel, and God has used him as the instrument to bring about the revival. God comes to him and says, I want you to leave this place, and I want you to go to Gaza. And by comparison, Gaza was a deserted place. Why would you leave Samaria for Gaza? But he doesn't ask God that. God told him to go to Gaza. He goes to Gaza, not knowing why he was being sent to Gaza. He arrives at Gaza, and there's an Ethiopian eunuch a very high Ethiopian official who is making his way home from a religious pilgrimage to Jerusalem, making his way home now to Ethiopia. He is sitting in his chariot, and he is reading Isaiah chapter 53, and he can't make heads or tails of whom the prophet is speaking of. And God then spoke to Philip and said, Join yourself to that chariot and declare to that man the Christ that that passage declared Jesus to him from that passage. And he did, and that Ethiopian eunuch was saved on the spot, baptized in that deserted place, and then history tells us went to Ethiopia and was part of a great awakening or explosion of Christianity within the nation itself. And many times God will just simply give us the first part of the revelation, the leaving of something, and, and not telling us where it all leads. And God had called these Hebrew Christians to leave the known, the law of Moses, the sacrifices, the history, the heritage, for the unknown, a life of faith. But he's letting them know, this is not an unprecedented thing. I've done the same thing with Abraham and Father Abraham obeyed to the blessing of the whole world. And they were to do the same thing, and so were we as Christians. And then he mentions Sarah in verses 11 and 12. Sarah's faith was demonstrated in her willingness to believe God's promise that she would bear a child in her old age. Say, how old was she? Ninety. How old was her husband? Forty. Now Abraham was 99. So you got a 99-year-old and you got a 90-year-old who've already been trying for decades to have a child without any success because Sarah is barren. God gives Sarah and Abraham the promise, but we're speaking of Sarah here specifically, that she is going to bring forth a child through whom God is going to bless the whole world. Now you imagine her at her meeting with her next appointment with her gynecologist. I need you to get me on those vitamins and run whatever test you have. I am going to be pregnant. Kind of an uncomfortable pause probably there in the room. 
And so often we read some promise of God in His Word, and then we dismiss it as impossible because of our own physical limitations or inadequacies or frailties. God, if you had told me this at 30, but 90? God, if you called me to do this at 25, but at 60? And we have this promise that God has given to us, this call that God has given to us, and we are prone to dismiss it because of some physical limitation related to ourselves. And Sarah teaches the importance of believing God's promises in the face of human impossibility. If it were humanly possible, it wouldn't require faith in God. And I want to ask, perhaps some of us here this morning, you're facing something that's humanly impossible, but you have a promise from God's Word. You hold on to that promise. Because as Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word will in no wise pass away. That promise will have the final say related to our lives, no matter what we are or are not physically. God is greater than our physical limitations. And then he speaks of Abraham again, Abraham the sequel, in verses 17 through 19. And in faith, Abraham was willing to offer up his son Isaac to the Lord. You say, what anchored his faith? God called him to offer his son as a sacrifice. What anchored his faith to be willing to do that? What did God know about Abraham's faith before he ever asked him to do such a thing? I was listening to a radio show about three weeks ago, and there is a man in terms of human intelligence, absolutely brilliant. No one would deny it. And yet he talked about, and it was interesting to me, he talked about his rejection of God, the God of the Bible specifically. He's an affirmed atheist. And his rejection of God's Word, and he laid out four obstacles to him having faith in the Word of God and in the God of the Bible. And as he laid those things out, one of them had to do with this whole thing with Abraham and God calling Abraham to sacrifice his son. And the four things that he laid out, I thought to myself, I wish I was in the room with him. I'm no big Ph.D. or something, but I mean a Christian that's just a few years old and the Lord would know how to answer these obstacles that he just thinks are insurmountable. And if that man had just taken the time to carefully read the context of what God called Abraham to do in the offering of his son from the Old Testament to say nothing of then taking the revelation in the New Testament, he would have easily understood that what anchored Abraham's faith in going to offer his son there on Mount Moriah was God's promise to make a great nation of Isaac. He already had that promise. I am going to make a great nation of that boy. And Abraham so believed that promise that he knew that either God is not going to require me to offer him to him, 
Or if I do sacrifice him, God will be forced to raise him from the dead to keep his promises. But as he said to the servants with Isaac when he left to go to Mount Moriah, both the boy and I will return to you. He knew that about that situation. And he knew that about his son. And, and, he, and he knew that about what God had promised. And I think Isaac and all of this, or Abraham and all of this, teaches us that faith is willing to obey God even when that obedience on the short term has the potential to cost us what we consider to be most dear to us in all of life. But to do so with the knowledge that when God calls us to do that, it's not because, it's only because He's up to something that is literally exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And that was an important lesson for these Hebrew Christians and for us. And then he speaks of Isaac in verse 20. By the way, we're ordering pizzas in, so just relax if you're getting hungry. You remember concerning Isaac in the Old Testament that when the time came to pronounce his blessing, the blessing of the birthright upon his two sons, Esau and Jacob, in order to obey God, Isaac broke with the tradition of giving the birthright to the older, and instead he gave it to the younger. He gave it to Jacob. And God had directed him to do that, and then when very heavy pressure came from his family to change his decision, he refused to be deterred, and he remained faithful to God. And like Isaac, these Hebrew Christians were not to relent to the heavy family pressure that was on them to obey their tradition over obeying God. And neither must we. And then he speaks of Jacob in verse 21, in the same vein of blessing Joseph's sons Ephraim and Manasseh. And Jacob did the same thing. He gave the birthright and the greater blessing to the younger rather than to the older. And then he speaks of Joseph there in verse 22. And you think about Joseph, one of the great gigantic figures and heroes of the entire Old Testament. His whole life was one of faith. It's like, where do you choose to draw an example of faith out of the life of, uh, of Joseph? There's so much to choose from. And it's very interesting, the one thing that he does pull out of to make an, an example. He speaks of Joseph's faith being demonstrated through the instructions that he gave the children of Israel regarding the day that they would ultimately leave Egypt from that bondage, and that when they did, he said, you take my bones out of this place and into the land that God has promised to you and that you are going to. Joseph died long before that exodus ever occurred. And Joseph was speaking to the children of Israel, speaking to his brethren, the children of God, and in essence saying, I've seen Egypt. I know Egypt. I've experienced Egypt. 
I know what it is to have been the most second most powerful man in Egypt, the most powerful kingdom in the world at that time. But I also know that there is nothing happening in Egypt that compares with being in the middle of God's plan for His people. I do not want my name associated with Egypt. I want my name associated with God's people, where they are, where their God is, and where God's work is taking place in the world through them. A very significant thing for these Hebrew Christians to hear who were thinking about abandoning Christian fellowship abandoning the place that God is doing something eternal in the world because of their hardship and their difficulty. And the writer of the book of Hebrews says, you ought to listen to Joseph a little bit. You're running to the place that he wanted nothing to do with in comparison to what you enjoy and are experiencing with God today. I think if any of us are sitting here this morning... And you're tempted to break away from God's people, to return to the world, to backslide in any way. You take it from Joseph. There's nothing out there. The only meaningful thing that is happening in this world is what God is doing in and through His people. Everything else is emptiness and frustration. And then he makes mention of Moses' parents in verse 23. And we remember that story where Pharaoh, threatened by the population explosion among the Jews who were a captive population in Egypt at that time, ordered the execution of every Jewish boy that came out of the womb. And here is Moses' parents, they have this child that's been born. The decree of Pharaoh has been given that the child is to be uh, put to death. To defy that decree would surely mean the death of any parent. And yet the parents defied the law of Egypt and they kept Moses alive. And when God, man's laws violated God's laws, they refused to keep man's laws in order to obey God's laws. The Apostle Peter later in the New Testament speaking to the, this great religious assembly of the Jews who were calling on him and the rest of the apostles to cease to preach Christ in Jerusalem. And that command of man came up against the great commission that had been given to them by Christ. And Peter rises up in the middle of that great august audience there, an assembly, and he spoke to them and he said, we ought to obey God rather than man. And this reminder concerning Moses' parents, I think would have really pierced the hearts of those Jewish believers who were looking to compromise God's commandments in order to find some relief from the persecution of the Roman Empire. And they were not to do it. And we're not to do it either. And then he speaks of Moses in verse 24 through verse 29. And here you have these Jewish believers, and they're looking to cease being identified with God's people. 
They're going to become underground Christians, hidden Christians. They're going to leave assembling together with Christians, identifying with Christians, and now they're going to go back into the old system and kind of go undercover on the whole thing in order to escape the suffering and the persecution that they were experiencing. And the writer reminds them of Moses, who readily gave up all of the power and all of the fame and all of the wealth and all of the security of a life in Egypt in order to be identified with God's people at whatever the cost. He reminds them, Moses longed to do the exact opposite thing that you are contemplating doing. He's been where you want to go. And when he was there, all he could think about is where you are and what you're experiencing and how he could become a part of that. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And then he brings, speaks to us of Joshua in verse 30. And we remember the great battle plan that... God gave Joshua and the children of Israel as they began the conquest of the promised land and the first city that was required in terms of, uh, of the conquest of the land was the defeat of the city of Jericho. And God gave Joshua the battle plan. I want you to build, I want you to uh, undermine the city and build tr- trenches underground to weaken the walls of the city so that they'll collapse at just the right time and then build ladders that you can climb up on the walls that survive the initial collapse. No, that's not what he said. That would make sense to us. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that great army that I've given to you and I want you to put a bunch of priests out in front of them and for six days I want the priests to blow the trumpet and then for that whole army and those priests to walk around that, that city, the walls of that city, one time in complete silence. And then on the seventh day, I want you to walk around in complete silence seven times. And when you get done with the seventh time, I want you to blow the, have the priests blow the trumpet. The walls will come down and you will then take the city. Now imagine Joshua having to sell this on his uh, military cabinet. And yet he obeyed it. And God gave them the victory. There's the old spiritual song that talks about Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho. But they never did fight the battle of Jericho. They faithed the battle of Jericho. And God does things in a way that, number one, gives us great victories in our personal growth as Christians, which is what possessing the promised land represents. But then he does it in such a way that only he can get the glory. Where God changes our lives so completely that people look and say, no, there's no explanation for him but God. (laughs) Now, there have been people that have become Christians, and they've become Christians, and I look at them and I say, I can still look at them and say, they, they, they live the life that they live and they walk the walk that they walk. And I, and I can see that that's simply an extension of their natural talents and natural abilities. But not this guy and not this gal. If you knew him or her before, you'd realize there is no other explanation for the change that occurred there and the life that they've lived for God now for decades except for the fact that God is alive and did a miracle in their lives. 
And God does things in our lives in such a way that He not only brings us into the promised land, the glory of His promises, but in a way that allows Him to be seen as the source of our life. And it's always going to require faith. And then he talks about Rahab in verse 31. You remember she was the prostitute in Jericho who received the spies that were sent in by Joshua to to spy out the city. She hid those spies. She believed the report from God that judgment was coming upon the city. And then she asked that she and her family could be spared in the coming battle. And so what they tell her? They told her to bind a scarlet cord, symbolizing the cross. You take that, that scarlet cord, you hang it out the window of your home on the wall, and when we see that scarlet cord hanging as an expression of your faith out that window, and we take this city, we will spare you and everyone that is inside of that home. And she did it and was spared God's judgment on that day. And the point that the writer is making is that if a pagan prostitute was willing to trust her life and her safety to God without having any significant history with Him, and to trust in a scarlet cord, then how much more those like these Hebrew believers who had such a significant history with God and we're trusting in the very blood of Christ. And then he speaks of others in verses 32 through 34, and he makes mention of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets without mentioning specifically all of their great exploits. And he's saying essentially, how many more do I need to make my point? In other words, he's saying, I'm not running out of examples I'm running out of time, and I know that feeling very well at the moment. And he closes in verses 35 through 40, speaking of all of the anonymous people, not just the famous ones, but the anonymous ones who lived faithfully and constitute this hall of faith that is a part of Hebrews chapter 11. Men and women who were tortured not accepting deliverance because it would require the denial of Christ to be delivered, verse 35. Suffering, verse 36. Stoned to death, verse 37. Sawn in two, verse 37. Tradition tells us that uh, Manasseh, one of the kings of the children of Israel, executed the prophet Isaiah by sawing him in two. Now you think about that. Those aren't just words on a page. Think about a Christian just like you, a child of God, who will not deny his God, refuses to be unfaithful to what God had called him to do, and remain faithful while they lay a saw against his skin and they saw him in two. That's our heritage. That's our spiritual lineage. It's almost like the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to introduce a sanctified shame into the hearts 
of these Jewish believers over the comparatively petty thing that they are thinking about leaving Christ for. In the light of those who have lived for God before them, others being tempted, verse 37, slain with the sword, wandering about in sheepskin and goatskins and destitute and afflicted and tormented, having no place to live, but instead living in deserts and mountains and dens and caves. And then in that verse 38, again, as we noted in reading it, God's commentary on it, whatever the world thinks of my people. He said, the world is not worthy of this kind of saint. And that's how God sees them. And having obtained a good, notice in verse 39, a good testimony through faith, they did not receive the promise. Some promises they did receive. But here the promise that's referred to is the promise of Christ, of His redemption and salvation, of the filling with the Holy Spirit. They did not, these saints endured all of that looking through a glass darkly at the future coming of the Messiah through the prophetic scriptures. And as wonderful as the prophetic scriptures are and the description of Christ, they are nothing compared to the revelation that you and I have in the Gospels and in the letters. Anytime we want, we can examine and read about his life, about his death, about his burial, about his resurrection, about his ascension, about his miracles, about his love and his power and his wisdom. It is unbelievable the revelation that these Hebrews believers have have, and that we have as well. They lived the life that they lived just for the bare little glimpses that they had in the future of this one to come. And again, the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to get them to realize we will sin against a greater revelation if we apostatize from Christ or backslide against Christ or compromise our obedience to Christ in order to secure some kind of a peaceful place and self-preservation in this world. Should a living saint living in the glory of the new covenant live a less committed life to God than they did? That's the question he's answering, asking. And the answer, of course, is no. Now we close at this point. And our time together this morning in Hebrews chapter 11, I didn't want to chop it up. It's all one thought, one flow. It all says the same thing. I could do a character study on every one of these people, but we would lose the flow. They witness to one great fact collectively. And if Hebrews chapter 11, by virtue of our extended time in the Word this morning, makes this chapter a friend to each one of us in such a way that not if, but when we face 
great difficulty and rejection and persecution for our faith in Christ. And now we know where in the Bible to turn for encouragement. Then this morning will have been more than successful related to all of our lives because that is what Hebrews chapter 11 is intended to do. That being faithful to God in this fallen world has always required faith. And so they ran their race. And that's why the writer tells us in chapter 12, verse 1, therefore we also. And the idea is they did it. It's done. Now what are you and I going to do with the same opportunity under the weight of a greater glory and a greater revelation? And it's good to think about. Perhaps some of us sit here this morning and you are in the middle of a great crisis or trial that has you confused, that this thing is throwing you to and fro in every direction, and you have endeavored to solve it and to fight against it in every human way. And this morning, for the first time concerning that situation, the light goes on and you realize this must be addressed with faith. With faith. With finding some promise from God's Word that speaks specifically to what I'm in the middle of. And then believing that that promise will have the final say concerning my life and concerning this circumstance. And that's a good thing to do. Maybe not this morning in our waning moments here now, but it's a good thing to take a walk with this afternoon and say, I've been fighting this every way except by faith, God, and now I want to address it by virtue of faith, believing God's Word to be true because He has said it and then committing to what He instructs us to do in that situation at whatever the cost. If you sit here this morning and you're not a Christian, you will give you a medal of some kind. And I tell you that this life that we've been talking about for an hour can be your life too. You say, oh, no, 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 I don't think so. You say, what in all of this could even appeal to a person? And yet it does. You're in this room because you're on a search for truth, fulfillment, satisfaction in life, salvation, God. God knows that. Why ever, why ever you understand yourself to be in the room, that's how God, why God, how God understands your being in the room. And part of the reason that you're in this room is that you have inside of you a sense that you've been destined for greatness. It's in there. However, it's been squashed or put upon in the course of your life. It's still there. You know you've been created for greatness, for something far greater than you have experienced yet 
in your life. And the reason you feel it is because you have. God has created you to be a great and experience a great experience of God's work in your life to turn you into a miracle of His and to then lead you in to the greatest life a person can live in this life to say nothing of heaven on the other side of it. You have been created for greatness, His greatness, and He wants to give it to you today. And there's going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin this life with Christ. I never believe a passage like this ever frightens a sinner away from God. I think people know the truth when they hear it, and they want the challenge because they know they've been made for the challenge in the Lord. And so come forward and receive God's gift of salvation to you today and begin the great life that God has planned for you. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for the richness of this passage. We see why it is one of the favorite chapters in the whole Bible. We thank you for what it does in us, a needed thing. And we pray, Lord, for our own lives and each of the other men and women that are in this room with us and in the fellowship hall. And we ask, Lord, that when times of trial and difficulty and persecution and mocking and indifference would sink us, in our Christian walk, that you would remind us to turn to this place of great resource in your word to receive the encouragement that is found here and to hear from this great hall of faith in terms of saints that it can be done, it can be done, it can be done, that the life of faith can be lived in the midst of the greatest and most difficult circumstances that a person will ever face in this life. Thank you, Lord, for the witness of these saints. And now we ask that in your grace and in the power of your Holy Spirit that you would make our lives a witness to that same truth to all who watch us in the hopes of finding hope and meaning, and purpose in life. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I owe you something. I don't know what I owe you, but something. You've been very patient. A long message this morning is the way it had to be, and God blessed it.